Well, whenever you read the Scriptures, right, it's an important to understand the literary genre of what you're reading. Right? It, it makes a difference of how you read. You read the Law of Moses different than you read the Psalms. You read the Prophets differently than you read Paul's epistles. You read the history of Acts different than you read the book of Job. And uh, I think we understand this. I just want to remind us of this again. It's super important as we come to the Scriptures, we, especially the book of Revelation. Just like, for instance, if you're following along in the One Year Daily Audio Bible, which well, that's several of you, we've got groups of that, just reading through the Scriptures, talking about that each week. It's like, I would encourage you with that. All Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable in seeing God work in lives of people with that. But this past week, there were books of uh, Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon, uh, written by... Uh, Solomon. And just think about the Song of Solomon. It's a love poem. And it's to be taken as poetry. It's a poem. For instance, beginning of chapter 4, here is Solomon, the preacher, extolling the beauties of of his love. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost its young. Your lips are like scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stones, and on it hangs a thousand shields, and on them, all of them, shields of warriors. That's a good place to shop if you're reading on. That's a good place. Those poetic it would be wrong for you to take those words literally. As, as if Solomon saw the eyes of his beloved as literal doves. I don't understand his teeth like literal lambs. I don't understand neck made of some stone, the tower of, of David. Right? It's a poetic way of talking about the beauty, right? Her, her teeth are gorgeous. Her hair flows, flows wonderfully well. And she's strong and mighty. Right? And, and I think we understand this, right? And, and I don't think that um, we're refusing to take the Scripture literally with all its similes and metaphors, and we use them as similes and metaphors. Likewise, the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a book of philosophy that overstates the case, hyperbole, like Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? If your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Right? That's hyperbole is what he's talking about. Ecclesiastes is the same thing. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is Vanity. This hyperbole, the, the preacher speaks it far stronger than it is. For in this book, he mentions things that aren't vanity, like loving your wife, like being satisfied with the good things in life. That, that's the way of wisdom, not pursuing the world for its pleasures, but enjoying the pleasures of the world in an appropriate way, remembering the Creator in the days of our youth. Without such wisdom, all would be Vanity. That's, that's not that we're denying literal interpretation, right? Which is all is vanity. You don't, you don't take all to mean everything. Because he, he defines it even later on in the Scripture. And we understand the books in the style in which they're written. And of course it pertains to us this morning as we come again once again to the book of, of Revelation. It's written in apocalyptic style. It's the book of Revelation. We see visions and dreams and cataclysmic events. The, the visions of the, the otherworldly things that are strange like Creatures with six wings full of eyes all around and within that just keep repeating the same thing like a parrot. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. In Revelation, we see lions that look like lambs that have been slaughtered. 
and lions that can grab things with their, their hands or their hoofs. We see robes washed white in the blood, and we see a, a ten-horned, seven-headed figure in, in Revelation 13. We see people marked on their foreheads with the name of God and of the Lamb. We see dragons thrown down to earth wanting to kill. We see seals, trumpets, and bowls that when opened and blown and poured out bring great harm to the earth. Right? We, we see things that, that cannot be explained. Right, The sun being darkened and the stars falling from the sky. Right, We can't explain that. We can't explain bottomless pits and mortal wounds that are healed. We can't explain a, a woman clothed with the sun. Revelation 12, verse 1. We can't understand and explain the lake of fire. We can't understand the, the city of Jerusalem, which is a, a thousand miles high. It's higher than Mount Everest by just a little bit. We can't explain that. We can't understand that in some regards, but it's just a, a, a beauty and the impact is what um, apocalyptic literature is. And, and nowhere is this imagery of Revelation more vivid than in the ninth chapter of Revelation that we come to this morning. So if you haven't done so already, open your Bibles. Revelation chapter 9. The title of my message this morning is uh, Blowing the Trumpets, Part 2. It's because Part 1 was last week when we looked at the blowing of the first four trumpets, which came in Revelation chapter 8. This week we're looking at the blowing of the fifth and sixth trumpets. And, and by the way, again, this is a, this is a message of judgment. There is, um, there's not a lot of mercy. There's not a lot of light here. There is some. Okay, and, and we will pull that up and we will see that, but this is a, a message of judgment. It is the end of the world that's going to take place. It is the working out of, of what Peter talked about, about the world being destroyed by fire. We get some details about how that's going to be, and it's, it's not, and again, I, I said last week, right, this isn't the sort of thing that many preachers just say, oh, I want to preach a topical message. Let's, let's go Revelation 9. Let's talk about the, judgment, the trumpet judgment. It just doesn't happen. But we're committed all Scripture. We're just going to work through this hard passage together. And it is a message of judgment, again, to a persecuted people. God's exerting a sovereign control over all the earth. Your king, your God, exerting sovereign control is going to be comfort to your soul. And I, I think that in many ways, just Ezekiel 33, like we read today, applies. Right? I am the watchman saying, and we need to heed these things, that the world is coming to an end somehow, like this says. Now, before we read from chapter 9, we've got to recap chapter 8. chapter begins with silence in heaven for half an hour. Now, last week, we spent 30 seconds, a time of silence. It's a long time. Half an hour is a, a really long time. But it's a moment of silence because of the solemnity of what's about to take place. In our secular society, some famous person, some athlete, some coach of some team, right, dies, passes away, maybe tragically or whatever, student body, whatever. There, oftentimes, right, there are, are crowds that are hushed and quieted for a moment of silence, remembering the one who died. Well, this isn't a, a moment of silence remembering the past. This is a moment of silence thinking about the seriousness of what's about to happen. And what's about to happen is these trumpets are going to be poured out. And, and the world is going to be destroyed, which takes place when the trumpets are blown. Now again, I want to remind you of, of Revelation, right? The backbone imagery of Revelation are the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. What chapter are the seals in? Help me. Chapter 6. Like, you should know this, right? Revelation 6. That's the, what chapter are the trumpets? Eight and nine, like we've been looking at. I heard someone say eight, seven, but it's eight and nine. And the bowls are chapter 16. 
Right? You, you, should, you should know that. And, and there are seven seals, and there are seven trumpets, and there are seven bowls. And the big question of Revelation is, right, how do these relate? Are they consecutive, like one after another? Right? The, the seals happening first, and then the, jol, the, the trumpets in history, and then the bowls? Is that, is that the way it works out? Or are they concurrent? Right? Are they just telling the story of, of judgment again? Right? Not that not that there's one they all line up, but but sort of like some somehow recapitulating the story, a telling of the story again. Those are the two major schools of interpretation. There are others, but that's the biggest basis of of, of where things go. And, and I just say, good men are on both sides of this debate. I don't think it's something we should be dogmatic about. I'd encourage you to deal with grace with those who maybe get timings differently. I've seen people be dogmatic on eschatology, and I don't think it's helpful. But what's helpful, though, is to understand the reality of what it's talking about. It's talking about the destruction of the world, however it takes place. And I think we're to think about it in the ways that these trumpets go. Like, one of the things I love about the Westminster Catechism, I think it's the third question, it says, what does the Word of God principally teach? It teaches us what we are to believe about God and what duty He requires of us. Right? So there are things about God that we can't know, but he has instructed us how it is that we need to think about that. And so even as it comes to the end of the world, the trumpet judgment, we need to think about the end of the world as sifted through these trumpet judgments. Now, when the first trumpet was blown last week, we saw a third of the earth was burned up. When the second trumpet was, bo- was blown, we saw a third of the sea creatures die. <clears throat> when the third trumpet was blown, the, the waters were made bitter. And the, when the fourth trumpet was blown, right, a third of the heavenly lights were dimmed. And like I said last week, I have no reason to doubt these are not literal. These very well could be literal. I, I, I have no reason to doubt that these are, are merely what Peter was describing in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter, remember, is a letter to the churches. It's not poetic. It's not apocryphal. We should take it at face value. Peter said this, The earth was formed, 2 Peter 3, 5, The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter says in a letter, to be taken face value, we ought to believe what he says, the, the, the earth was created, formed out of water and through water. You just read Genesis 1. Water's all around that. Water was encompassing this earth at one time. And then Genesis 6 tells about how the, the, the earth was flooded. And Peter says, just as it was destroyed by water, it's going to be destroyed by fire the next time. God promised he wouldn't flood the earth again, but he didn't promise he wouldn't burn it the next time. And that's what we see in Revelation. We're, we're, we see the fire that's going to come upon Revelation to destroy it. It's the destruction of the ungodly is what, what Peter says. And, and Peter brings the application, which I think is the application of our, our text, he says in 2 Peter, the very next verse, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Do not overlook this one fact that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some of you count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And we're going to see that these people that who are receiving these trumpet judgments are not reaching repentance. The destruction is coming, and they're refusing to repent. It's really the, the message, there is, there is light, there is hope there. That is the message we'll transition the Lord's Supper with about repentance. And so now we read of the fifth and sixth trumpets being blown in chapter 9, and we actually need to begin in chapter 8, verse 13. And then I looked, and I heard an eagle 
crying with a loud voice as it drew, flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So John looked up. And he, he sees, he hears this angel crying out. It's almost as if, right, this public address announcement, this eagle is flying there and speaks again, right? Eagle talking. It's apocalyptic literature. Somehow, that's what he saw, that's what he heard. Okay, we're, that was sure, but what exactly that means or how that's going to work, he just says basically this, the vision. There's going to be woes. So the, the fifth trumpet will bring a, ro- a woe. If you look at verse 12 of chapter 9, after the first trumpet, the first woe is passed. Two woes are still to come. And the sixth trumpet brings a woe. Um, Revelation chapter 11, verse 14. The second woe is past. The third woe is soon to come. And the seventh trumpet finishes the woes at which we read Revelation eleven fifteen: The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Right? This almost seems like the end of history right there in, in chapter 11 again. But that's what it is, these woes. So these are hard things today. So we look at the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet. They're woes. It's not pleasant. Um, think about the woes. Draw me back to Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 when he's pronouncing woes against the hypocrites, the Pharisees. Like, this hard words. And these trumpets are hard words. But the Lord will give us ears to hear, I trust. So let's read of the fifth and sixth trumpet blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened, and the smoke from the shaft. And then from the smoke came locusts of the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and the power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek his name is Apollyon. First woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before the God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice, 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision, and those who rode them, they wore breastplates of of the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and their heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths, for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For the tails are like the serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Here it is. 
This is the great application, I think, for us. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. Amazing. They saw the power of God. They saw the destruction. They saw the ends of the earth. And they didn't repent. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk They did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Well, by way of outline this morning, we have two trumpets, so we have two points, right? We have trumpet number five, which is locusts that torment, and uh, trumpet number six, which is angels that kill. So the first point, which is actually the fifth point, if we carry over from part two of my message, right? Here's the the locusts that torment. The locusts are, are dominant in these four verses here. They're given power to torment people, as verse 5 says. And, and there's a lot of apocalyptic imagery going on in this chapter. And so we just need to like flow with it. And I say enjoy it. Right? You, you look at a fine piece of art that's a Pablo Picasso, somewhat bizarre. You just enjoy it. That's what we're talking about here. It's going to make an impression upon us. Verse 1, and the, the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. We, we begin here with a star falling from the heavens. I mean, this is the theme of all the trumpets. The first three trumpets, right, when they blow, large objects are falling from the heavens, whether it's a mountain or whether it's stars or, or whether it's something like burning with um, um, hail and fire mixed with blood, like some big object to coming down, and here is no, no difference. Here we see a star falling, except this is no star. Because it's a star with hands and abilities. If you look at verse 1 again, right? The second half. And he, that's the star, was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. So in this case, we got a star, which is a he coming down. So, like just a little, little help for you, right? When you see stars falling from the sky, be careful. They may not be talking about literal stars, they may be representative of people or demons. Job talk, talks about when the morning stars sang together. In Judges 5, the song of Deborah, we see the heavens, the stars fought, and they bring their, their war down to earth, right? There's the um, imagery there, right? So I throw these things out for you just being careful, right? Hold the details loosely. Somehow the star comes, right? given a key, and here in Revelation 9, the big picture is the judgment coming upon the earth to destroy the ungodly. And we ought not to get caught up in all the details of everything. One man, however, that did get caught up in the details was Charles Spurgeon. Maybe you guys have heard of Spurgeon before. I trust you have. If you haven't, uh, you need to figure that out and read about him. Read some of his sermons. He's a wonderful man. He was, uh, as a boy, his father was a preacher, and he was too poor to care for him, so he was raised by his grandfather, who was also a preacher. And Spurgeon writes this in his uh, autobiography. In fact, I I brought his, his autobiography here. It's a, it's a great read to read. I remember reading this out loud to Yvonne early in our marriage. It's a great thing. He, he talks about this. He says, when I was a very small boy, I was allowed to read the scriptures at family prayer. I trust you're having family prayer, by the way. Once upon a time when reading the passage in Revelation, which mentions the bottomless pit, I paused and said, Grandpa, what can this mean? The answer was kind but unsatisfactory. Poo-poo, child, go on. The child, however, intended to have an explanation and therefore selected the same chapter morning after morning and always halted at the same verse to repeat the inquiry, hoping that by repetition he would importune the good old gentleman into a reply. 
and the process was successful. For it is by no means the most edifying thing in the world to hear the history of the mother of harlots and the beast with seven heads every morning in the week, Sunday included, with no sort of alteration, either psalm or gospel. The venerable patriarch of the household therefore capitulated at discretion and said, Well, dear, what is it that puzzles you? Now, the child had often seen baskets with very frail bottoms, which in the course of wear became bottomless and allowed the fruit place therein to drop upon the ground. Here then was the puzzle. If the pit aforesaid had no bottom, where would all these people fall into who dropped out of the lower end? And a puzzle which rather startled the propriety of family worship and had to be laid aside for the explanation at some more convenient season. Over and over, right? Wanting to know about the bottomless pit. Because he, he was worried about how, how people fell in, right? Puzzled by it. But it's interesting here that the bottomless pit isn't about the falling in, it's about the coming out. This is a bottomless pit, like, like one that just has no, it's like Mary Poppins' bag, right? You remember, she just pulls out and pulls out and pulls out her carpet bag, and Jane and Michael Banks are like, what? How, how's she pulling that lamp out? How's she doing all that? It's coming out. It's coming out. Spurgeon's grandfather would have done well to talk about apocalyptic literature. Son, as you said, right? This is pictures. It's not to be puzzled out, right? It pictures something horrible, though. Right, these, these locusts that coming out, like coming out of this, this pit. Verse 2, he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit because he had the key and he opened it, he unlocked it, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And, and the sun and the air were darkened and the smoke from the shaft, the sun was already darkened in the, the fourth trumpet, maybe now it's darkened more, or maybe it's sort of a, another telling of what things are going to be like. Right, but the this, this smoke wasn't like dimming everything from a forest fire. It was a smoke that formed because of swarms of locusts that were released. Look at verse 3. And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions over the earth. Now, if you know your Bible well, you know that God often brought judgments with locusts upon the earth. The eighth plague of Egypt was a plague of locusts, where God sent locusts to devour every growing thing in the fields, right? Bringing a famine upon the land and bringing the Egyptians into distress. In the book of Joel, uh, locusts are mentioned a lot in connection with the day of the Lord. And I think this is the, the link back to the Old Testament about locusts. I'm just going to read a bunch from Joel. Joel chapter 1, verse 4. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. This is over and over, these, these locusts coming and destroying and destroying and destroying. And Joel then calls the people to repent, which is, I think, the message of chapter 9, especially those who didn't repent, shockingly, in verse 20. So Joel, chapter 1, 14 and 15, he says, Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and ask destruction from the Almighty. It comes. Here comes, right? The destruction is coming. The locusts are just a, um, a forewarning of that. And, and the parallels, listen, with Revelation are astonishing. Listen to this. Joel 1, verse 19 through chapter 2. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. First trumpet. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up. Third trumpet. Fire has devoured the pasture of the wilderness. Blow a trumpet in Zion. A trumpet. 
Sound an alarm by the holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it's near. And that's the idea. These trumpets of the day of the Lord is coming, like the Lord is near. So we see a day of darkness and gloom, days of clouds and thick darkness. Fourth trumpet, fifth trumpet, we see darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been seen before, nor will there be any after them through all the years of their generations. We see fires and trumpets and darkness and gloom, just like the trumpets. And the locusts from God come upon the earth in His judgment. The message here is that you repent. Realize, realize that this, this danger is coming, this time in which God is going to destroy the world. We need to repent and, and, uh, and submit to Him. Like, who are you to stand against the Almighty when He releases wrath upon the world? Call upon Him. Crowd to Him. And Joel even promises. Joel chapter 2, verse 32, which Peter approached, quotes on the day of Pentecost, and it came to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So call the name of the Lord the day in which he can be found. That's the application of Revelation 9 for us. Repent. Repent. His judgment is coming. Because if you're one of those who repented and turned to the Lord, you're going to be protected from these locusts, as we shall see here a little bit. But let me just ask you, right? have you ever experienced a plague of locusts like this? You ever been to a place where locusts are just all around? How many? Like, anyone been in a locust plague? We're unique. <laughs> David, have you? Where? Yeah, at that rest stop. We were on vacation this summer, and uh, we're driving through Nevada on our way to California to see Avon's family, and we stopped at this very rest area. These are some screenshots taken from my family videos that I like to do. And at the rest stop... I came upon this, what I thought was a, a giant grasshopper. So here it is with Steffi's shoe, and you can't quite see it, but these, these guys are two and a half, three inches long. So these are like, like big grasshoppers, what they look like. And pretty soon we saw another, and another, and another, and this was right there at the rest stop. Like you, you just see them on, climbing on the walls and on the, the tree in the background. And so right, we're, we're then trying to figure this out. And there was a guy there who said, these are, anyone heard of what these are? They're not grasshoppers. They're not locusts. They are what kind of crickets? They're Mormon crickets is what they're called. They're called Mormon crickets. So we did some research, and uh, you, I got to do a search, Mormon crickets, Elko, Nevada, and like here they are just all around. So imagine this field driving on the road, and you're crunch, 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 crunch. It is awful. And, um, you know, they're, they're descend upon Nevada. They, they cover sidewalks and the road. They're all over your house. They're in hospitals. They're like all over. Huge nuisance. And for those in Elko, they can't wait until they die off. I'm just saying it was, it was awful. And we did not use the toilets on our rest stop. I can only imagine what these locusts are in, in Revelation be like, coming with such swarms that they darken the sky. These weren't darkening the sky. These were just a, a lot. However, look at these locusts. Verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth, nor any green plant, nor any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Again, apocalyptic energy, like different than the locusts in Joel, because locusts eat vegetation. Or we figured out that the locusts also will eat the, these, whatever, crickets will eat themselves when there's no vegetation left. But here they're told not to harm the vegetation. But that's what these things do, and that's how... But again, it's, it's apocalyptic. Again, so these locusts here were not tormenting the vegetation. They were tormenting people. Right? It's, a, it's a prelude. Right? That these are not mere locusts. 
In fact, we're going to see in verse 7 what they really are, what they look like. But they're, they're not locusts. And, and I hope you find encouragement there in, in verse 4 that, that those whom God has sealed, go back to Revelation chapter 11, are going to be protected, right? Verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth, nor any green plant of the tree, but only those people who do not have the seal on their foreheads, right? You go back to Revelation 7, and they're the people of God that were protected and sealed, and these locusts could not touch them, could not harm them. Such was the, the sovereignty of God, and this is, this is how salvation works. It's a God, we threw our faith, we trust in Him, and He seals with us with the Holy Spirit of promise. He keeps us and guards us and protects us and keeps us until that final day. People often ask, can a man lose his salvation? Well, I'm just, the better question is, can God lose someone he's sealed? I don't think so, because God has, has caught us and kept it. We're protected by God. We're protected from the wrath that comes upon the enemy. And, and here, again, the sovereignty of God, the devastation locusts bring is only upon the, the sovereign control of God. He dictates who they, who they harm, what they harm, and who they harm. He dictates even also how long he harms them. Look at verse 5. They were, not allowed to, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. This lasts for, for five months. Now, reading through Revelation, right? So I've been studying this. Uh, like five months. That's like, it, it just kind of, there's dissonance there. Because times in Revelation are often thousand years or you see seven years, or you see half of seven years, but to see five months is just a strange thing, and um, five months, maybe because five months is the lifespan of the average locust, is what my, my guess is. But here, as long as they live, right, they're given to torment people. It's the fifth trumpet, lo- locusts that torment. Anyway, we see a bit of how they torment people in verse 5 at the end. The, their torment is like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. Again, I have this experience, right? If you guys were here a couple months ago, you remember when I was visiting my, uh, my folks in Arizona, taking care of them <coughs> for a week as all of us children were going down there to help them. It was a night before we, we planned to leave. I was getting some good sleep until I felt something on my face. It felt like a spider, and I, I went like this, and all of a sudden, bam! Oh! It, it hurt, my, hurt my ring finger, and I brushed it off from my forehead, and this guy got me. And to make a long story short, I was stung by... How, how many have been stung by scorpions? I asked that before, and I was the only one. So we're, we, we've experienced the plagues, and we've experienced scorpion stinging, and it uh, caused my, my finger to go numb for a couple days. Uh, it was uncomfortable. It wasn't unbearable. I remember it, was, it made my flight home pretty unbearable, I mean, pretty, pretty uncomfortable. I remember that. Like, just, just it kind of went through my whole body. It was, it was difficult. But anyway, I captured my scorpion, and... Uh, here it is. He's all dried up and, and withered out, but this is the guy. I, I asked my dad if down in Arizona he actually would take this and pin it to, a, uh, pin it to the wall just as a message to other scorpions coming in so they might see it and say, oh, you go in there, you get crucified. <laughs> but anyway, I, I got him. And um, that night I was stung, stung by a scorpion. I, I, I looked online to see whether this is something dangerous. You know, do I need to get to the hospital? And I pretty soon figured out that this is the most dangerous scorpion. I think it's the bark scorpion. I can't quite remember in uh, Arizona, and it's the the most lethal. Whatever, not lethal. Actually, it's only killed like two people since 1968, and they probably had pre-existing conditions of some type. Uh, so it's not it's not lethal, but it's it's not pleasant. And I, I I just I sympathize with these people here that to be to be stung by one scorpion is bad enough. 
but to be stung by lots of scorpions, that would be torment. That's why I read in verse 6, and in those days people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In other words, this is torture. God, in His judgment, says locusts are going out, and you torture people for five months to get… Why, why are people torched? Why are people tortured? To get some kind of confession out of them, right? To, to confess or betray their nation or something like that. And what God is doing, He's torturing them so that they would what? Repent. And turn. But they failed to repent and turn. Well, in verse 7, we find out what these locusts actually are. The appearance of these locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, and their faces were like human faces, and their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings were like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing to battle, and they have tails and stings like scorpions, and the power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek his name is Apollyon. So I've seen this picture. Maybe all you've got to do is look up Revelation 9 picture, and that sort of thing comes up like this. So you've got a, a head with a, a crown of gold and face like a human face and hair like women's hair. Now, that's probably a sign of strength, like Samson or um, Abimelech. No, Absalom. Absalom. Teeth like lion's teeth breastplate of, of iron. Now, people tried to figure this out, right? Perhaps the most famous. I know, Darren, you, you've heard about this one before. This is Hal Lindsey, right? that false prophet who prophesied Jesus coming back. But he, he said, oh, this looks like a Cobra helicopter. He said, I have a Christian friend who was a Green Beret in Vietnam. When he first read this chapter, he said, I know what those are. I've seen hundreds of times in Vietnam. They're Cobra helicopters. That may be conjecture. I think it's conjecture. But it's how people try to, try to read these things, right? The as the sound of many chariots, my friend believes the torment will become some, some kind of nerve gas that sprayed from its tail. I, I, I don't know. I'm kind of doubtful because uh, a cobra helicopter kills and doesn't just maim or, 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 or torment for five months. I think it proves too far. And also, right, the number of cobra helicopters, they're not coming out like the locusts, right? So to try to get this specific, I don't think that's valid, but it's how people are trying to think of it. I encourage you to think about that first picture. Just whatever it is. That's what John saw. That's how God wants us to see it. Whether that's apocalyptic, it is apocalyptic, and how it fleshes out, we don't exactly know. But we see in verse 11 something more strange about these locusts. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, in Greek his name is Apollyon. Proverbs 30, verse 27 says, locusts have no king. So again, apocalyptic, like locusts, they just kind of do what they want to do, but this, these locusts have, have a king over them. His name is Abaddon, Abaddon in Hebrew, Apollyon in Greek, and you know what that means? It means destruction. And uh, John Bunyan picked that up with... Uh, Pilgrim's Progress, if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, that would be a good one to read as well. Spurgeon and Pilgrim's Progress, those are like staples of the historic Christian life. But here Jesus was, or the Christian was fighting Apollyon, fighting the destruction, fighting the devil. And this is the idea, right? It's probably the devil has king over them. This is what Satan comes to do. He comes to, to, to harm. And Jesus said, John 10, 10, I came to give life and give it abundantly. So repent and turn to the one who's going to give you life rather than one who's trying to kill you. 
And then we read in verse 12, the first woe is past, behold, two woes are still to come. That means the trumpet number five is done, and now we transition to trumpet number six, and then transition to the, the Lord's Supper. Hopefully we can redeem this by thinking about Jesus some. We read in verse 13, then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Um, here's the, the altar. We saw an altar in chapter 6. The martyrs were under the altar, right? Here's an altar, and um, ancient Hebrew altars had four horns on them. They're kind of like extensions. Uh, people, if they were in trouble, would kind of go to those four horns of the altar. It was a place of refuge and strength. So apparently this um, voice came from an altar. So, right, this voice coming from this wooden or the stone altar again apocalyptic just let just enjoy it's a picture and it said to the sixth angel saying to the sixth angel verse 14 who had the trumpet release the four angels who are bound at the great river euphrates you're like okay so what about euphrates why why is this um i do not think you take this literally as if there are four angels who are at this river and they're going to go over and there's this jail someplace in euphrates and they're going to let them, let them loose. I don't, I don't think that's at all. Uh, Euphrates was oftentimes seen in ancient um, literature or whatever. The Scripture is seen as like the edge of the boundary of the Roman Empire, the edge of the, the rule of Solomon's reign. It's almost like you get over Euphrates and you go into enemy territory. But the promised land, right, way out there, way close to Babylon. But I do think, right, we're going to see Babylon mentioned in uh, Revelation chapter 18. And, and maybe this is the idea, is that these four angels were... In Babylon, where you see this, this wicked nation, maybe they had been there, maybe they're part of that, which also raises a question, right? Were they, are these angels or are they demons? Angels and demons are the same sort of being, just angels are good and, and demons are bad, and so many have said, no, these are really demons. I've kept my point here, angels that kill, because it may be angels. We don't know, like think about Passover, it was the angel of the Lord who killed. God doesn't necessarily have to always have a a demon that does his dirty work. But here, whatever this is, angels, demons, is, they're going to go. In fact, by the way, angels oftentimes called the host, the heavenly host. These are the ones who go fight for God. And so these angels, demons, were there bound at the river Euphrates, and they were to be released. I love verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Jesus said, no one knows the time of his return except the Father who's in heaven. And here's the Father saying, I got this time out there. And God knows the time. We don't know the time. But God knows the time when the angels are going to come. And, and these angels, or these demons, or whatever, they seem like they're like, like one-time use sorts of angels. Like they, it seems like they were created, and they're bound, and they're stuck there. And then they're going to be released for this one purpose, right? This one war just right at the end is sort of what it seems. And again, we see the sovereignty of God preparing these for a one-time use, like packaging material or something, right? Just one time, and then they're thrown away. We, we don't know. But here we see, again, the sovereign control of God, that they were here released to kill a third of mankind. Boundaries around, right? With a fifth angel, you can only torment those who aren't sealed with a seal of God on their forehead. Here, only kill a third. And I assume that's probably the, a third of those who aren't sealed, probably, is the assumption there. That's a lot of people to kill a third of mankind. World War I. About 
one to two percent of the world's population was killed in World War I, whether that's army on the scene or civilian casualties or something. World War II is worse, pushing three percent. This is ten times worse than World War II, which was horrific over the world. This is, if you were, another world war. It may be World War III. It may be World War VIII. Like, we don't know. It's, a, it's this dominant war that takes place that is mounted and, and fought. And, and it's interesting here. It's not that, it's not that humans are fighting against humans, right? There's this divine element that it's God who's bringing this, and God is going to be the one that destroys a third of mankind through, through the angels. And then we see... Right, verse 16, the number of the mounted troops were twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. So all of a sudden, right, where did these troops come from? All of a sudden, right, these troops, we, we don't know anything about that. And, and there's a number. 10,000 times 10,000 twice is 200 million. But I don't think the point is, right, count this. I think the point is, though, just this huge army bigger than U.S. military, bigger than the Russian military, bigger than Ukrainian military, bigger than China military think. I'm not sure how big China's military is, but lots. The idea is lots and lots. And, and then and again, right, he sees these troops described again in verse 17 through 19. This, they're, they're a little bit like these scorpions, right, like these grasshoppers, locusts, but they're, they're different. Verse 17, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision. So he saw these horses that were going to come out and go in battle. They wore breastplates of color of fire, of sapphire and sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. Something like from the front, right? Just fire coming out, breastplates of iron, different pictures. This is apocalyptic. Enjoy the picture. And by these three <clears throat> plagues, right, the fire plague, the smoke plague, and the sulfur plague, and so you see what they're doing is they're, they're getting them by, by fire and sulfur, and um, by smoke is how these warriors are, are fighting a third of mankind was killed, exactly like God said. You got a third you can go after, kill a third of mankind, and they killed a third. I just think about how like Job this is. Remember the conversation that, that Satan had with the Lord before inflicting Job? He says, well, you, you, you can take what's his, but don't touch him. And so Satan wiped away all his wealth and all his family in a day. Well, and then Satan came back another time and said, well, you touch his skin, he's going to like curse you. He says, okay, touch his skin, but don't kill him. And that's what he did. He touched his skin, put him on a, a sickbed for months. He did not, and, and so here, like he said, a third of mankind, verse 18, a third of mankind was killed by this fire and smoke and sulfur, these three plagues that come out of their mouths. And it says even here, the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. And their tails, right, not like scorpions anymore, but they're like serpents with heads. So you got like this two-headed beast and this monster coming out. I, I don't think they're cobra helicopters. I think it's who knows what this is. This is destruction coming upon the earth. The question, though, that really rises, so this is what Revelation is talking about. It, is God just in this? Like, is this really fair of God to pour this out among people? And we see, verse 20, the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues, that is two-thirds of mankind, minus those who were sealed, probably. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. They didn't repent. They continued in their ways. 
And by the way, we see the same thing over in Revelation chapter 16, which is the bowls. When the fourth bowl and fifth bowl are poured out, let me just read them for you. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire, and they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. So we're going to see in the bowls when we get there in a month or two or three or whatever, when uh, um, the bowl is poured out and they're being scorched and they're in pain, they're cursing God as the one responsible for all these things rather than realizing God's got great power. I repent, I turn from my ways and I follow you. Or verse 11, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness and people gnawed their tongues in anguish. And they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. And you say, is God just in this? When he begins to show his majesty and his power, all God is wanting us to do is cry uncle and just say, God, you're God, and I'm not, and I, you are right. Like, that's what Job did, right? In the midst of all the things, Job just, I repent in dust and ashes, and you are the sovereign one. I don't have all the answers, but you are the, the sovereign one. And these people did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up their, their idols, nor worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. That's just a, a reflection from Psalm 115 and Psalm 135. Those psalms just speak about the idols, right? You've got to pick them up and you've got to move them and you've got to put them on a cart in order to get them around. They, they have eyes they can't see, but they have hands and feet, legs they can't walk. They're like so futile, but people pursue after the, the vanity of, of idols. And we may not have idols like that, but we have idols of verse 21. They did not repent of their murders, perhaps their hatred and anger towards people, even as Jesus said, or their sorceries that is involved and engaged in witchcraft, other spirituality sort of things, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Plenty of sexual immorality in America, in the world. It's disseminating throughout the world. Or their thefts. They're stealing things. They didn't repent. They just continued on and said, this is okay, even in the midst of seeing this great judgment. And so, right, here's really the opportunity that we have today, right? Are we going to look, right, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Are we going to look at that and just say, we need to be ready for that day, if ever that day comes upon us? Now, there are plenty who say, no, Christians are going to be taken out. That's wonderful. But there are others who say, Christians are going to be right here. Christians are the ones who are going to be protected. It could be. At least to those who originally heard the book, they thought they were in the midst of some tremendous tribulation, as John said he was, a fellow partaker of the tribulation. They were going through some difficult things. And for the next 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, the early church went through some difficult things. Not us so much. I mean, so regardless of, of whether we're in this or not, or are we going to have the foresight to say God is all-powerful God and He's the one that, that deserves all our homage and, and all our praise. And He has provided for us Jesus on the cross who died for our sins that we might avert the wrath of God. He took all this torment for five months. He took all this wrath upon himself so that he died in our place. And that's the glories of the gospel. And that's what we celebrate with the Lord's Supper. It's our, it's our escape out. It's not just repenting in a vacuum. I mean, it doesn't speak here about repenting and believing in Jesus, though the whole flavor of the book of Revelation says, yeah, look at the Lamb, Revelation chapter 5, who by his blood ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Right? This is the Lamb who was slain that we look to. So it's implied here, right? Repenting of your deeds, submitting yourself to the Lord Jesus. And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Just, you said, you know, I'm, I'm submitting to Christ. I'm, I'm giving in. I have said, Uncle, 
I am I'm one who's just trusting in the blood of Jesus for my forgiveness. And that's what we're going to celebrate here in a little bit. So why don't you close your eyes, bow your heads, you think about this message of, of judgment that's coming, and uh, hopefully in future weeks it won't be quite so hard. But just reflect upon just what our sin as a, as a planet deserves as we have lived in high rebellion against the Lord. As Paul told us to examine ourselves, right, to see whether we are one of those who are sealed by the Holy Spirit, trusting Him through faith. And if so, well, this celebration of the Lord's Supper is for you. But if you're living in rebellion against the Lord, I just let the bread and let the cup pass beside you. Run repentance in. The message of this message is to repent. The turn, maybe there are things in your life that you just kind of let slide. It's like, oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. You're not okay then. So repent and trust in the Lord. And so, God, I just thank you for Jesus. So we want to think about him and the gospel of Christ. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's what you call us to do. Turn from our sin and trust solely in you. And thank you for you pouring out your, your blood in your body on the cross. He was our propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. And that's what we do. God, may this time of remembrance and re- focusing upon the crucifixion of Christ stir our hearts afresh, afresh in your love for us as demonstrated in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.